The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This week and next week, we're just looking to do a couple of topics. Um, uh, we're going to beginning a, be beginning a, a great study on missions on the 19th. So you can mark your calendars for that, and that's going to be wonderful. Um, kind of a mini perspectives class, although not quite. Um, you just can't beat the perspectives class that the U.S. Center puts out uh, for thoroughness, but uh, it's, a, it's hard work. Our Acts class has the advantage slash disadvantage that we don't require any homework or outside reading. You just kind of come and learn. Um, but anyway, that's what we'll be doing in a couple of weeks. So this week, at least, um, I'd like to uh, look at the life of Martin Luther. I look back over uh, some of the Acts classes that I've taught and some of the other things. We've never done a dedicated study on Luther. Uh, it also happens that I'm teaching a class on Martin Luther at Southeastern Seminary, and so synergy is looking really good to me these days, you know, multiplication of effort. So with your permission, let's uh, spend some time learning about Martin Luther um, tonight. Um, I'll tell you this, uh, there, there are a few people in church history that um, had as great an influence on church history, on the events, as Martin Luther did. He seems to me... Um, almost like a stunning or amazing kind of figure, like a rock uh, that just divides a stream. Um, and so history really just kind of flows around the life and the teaching and the influence of Martin Luther. One of the reasons that they gave me the opportunity to teach really anything connected with um, church history at Southeastern, anything that was lined up with my training. Um, and uh, I chose Luther um, because I think he, his combination, the combination of the doctrines that he that he taught and wrote about and preached, and his life, uh, you can't beat the combination. He had an exciting life. He was a fascinating individual. I think of anybody in the Reformation, or maybe even church history, that I'd like to spend an evening eating dinner with, uh, Luther would be way up on the high on the list. He'd be a lot of fun. Never quite sure what was going to come out of his mouth. Um, not... not uh, a predictable person, but his commitment to the Lord and to the Word unshakable and his influence on church history remarkable. So what I want to do tonight is just give a kind of an overview of Luther's life, uh, talk about the situation that he worked in, what he, uh, what he was trying to accomplish, how it worked out, and just a, maybe a quick overview in the time we have together. Now, in the 15th and 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church was ripe for reformation. Now, when I talk about the church in the West, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. There was no other game in town. There was no other church. You know, nowadays, if you don't like what's going on at your local church, you just go up the road. You could even stay within the same denomination. It's remarkable the variety and the choices that you have. Um, there are over 30 Southern Baptist churches within an easy drive of here, perhaps even more at this point. That's back six years ago, but there have been a number of church plants since then. Uh, back then, in Luther's time, it was only the Roman Catholic Church. That's all there was. In the West, in the East, you had the Orthodox Church. That's it. So when I say that this church, the Roman Catholic Church, was ripe for Reformation, it's because there, was no other, there was no other place to turn. And there were Reformation movements before Luther. Um, almost, a, almost exactly a 100 years before Luther's 95 Theses were nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, I'll tell you, about, almost about a hundred years before that, John Huss was burned at the stake 
in Bohemia, modern Czech uh, Republic, for, for just about the same, exact same doctrines that Luther would eventually espouse a hundred years later. It just, you could say providentially and in the fullness of time, the time wasn't right yet. But there were movements of reformation. Um, Luther zeroed in on the doctrinal life of the church. Now, many before him were looking at the excesses, the luxurious lifestyles of the popes. They lived like, like potentates. They lived like emperors. Um, and the uh, lascivious or sexually immoral life of clergy and others. Uh, they saw these things. Uh, but Luther zeroed in on the doctrine. You can see that quote there on page two. Others attack the false life of the church. I attack the false doctrine. Now, both of those are important, aren't they? We're not going to say that only one of them is important. First Timothy 4.16 says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. But uh, I say of the two, the doctrine takes preeminence because that's what that's the gospel that they're preaching. Without preaching a true gospel, the book of Galatians teaches us you don't get true conversions. Uh, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one you receive, let him be eternally condemned, Paul said in Galatians 1. So uh, Luther was right to zero in on that. And also life flows from doctrine, doesn't it? As you understand the Christian life well, then you'll live well. If you don't understand it properly, uh, then um, it's impossible to live it properly. Now, there were attempts at reform before Luther. Uh, this man, Girolamo Savonarola, uh, is not a very attractive guy. I got that picture there off the Internet, and I thought, my goodness, okay? But uh, anyway, aside from how he looks in profile there, uh, he had a, a phenomenal impact in Italy. Uh, he was a reformer before Luther. Uh, he was Italian. He was a Dominican monk. He was a bold preacher of righteousness. He exposed sin clearly. Now, I think when Luther talked about how others attack the life of the church, I'm attacking the false doctrine. I think this man, Savonarola, would be in his mind. Um, He was attacking the sin of the clergy in the monastery. He preached against what they were doing. He eventually became a political leader of Florence and reforms were taking place. But when he started to attack the pope, and the College of Cardinals directly for their excesses. He was accused of heresy. He was convicted. He was hanged and his body was burned. So that's 1498. Now, Luther was born in 1483. So there's some overlap there, but Luther hadn't really gotten going. He was just a, you know, a young man or teenager really at the time. Uh, but I'm just trying to show you there were attempts at reform. Right before the time of Luther was this man Erasmus. Now, Erasmus is an interesting guy. I, I call him a reformer, a Catholic reformer in quotations. Was he really a reformer? It's hard to tell. Uh, Erasmus is one of the most fascinating uh, people in the Reformation to me, 16th century, a remarkable individual. He was a humanist. Uh, he was a man of letters. Uh, what I mean by that is he was a scholar. He was a reader and a writer and a studier and a speaker. Um, he was a classicist. He studied... Um, uh, the ancient Greek classics and uh, the philosophers. Now, one of the interesting things about what was going on is right around this time or before this time, the Turks, the Muslim Turks, were ascendant and strong and powerful. Uh, they were um, starting to advance and perhaps even encroach on Europe. In Luther's lifetime, as a matter of fact, he saw this as evidence that the world was about to end. He really saw, you would read the book of Revelation and he would see the Turks... Uh, the the, uh, Muslim Turks pressing right up against the gates of Europe Uh, because what had happened is the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, had fallen to the Turks. That was huge. That was the remnant of the Eastern Roman 
empire. But what happened with that, and this is really fascinating, there's a couple things that, that came of that. One of them is Columbus uh, came out of that because they, the uh, Muslim sea raiders were sailing all in that whole area and they couldn't get to India. The European traders couldn't get to India because they were constantly running into the Muslim um, uh, pirates or, or navies. And by the way, these are the ones that brought Islam down the eastern coast of Africa. When I was in Mombasa, there's a number of, of mosques and all that. That's how they, they went. Well, they couldn't get to India. So Columbus was sailing west looking for a way to get away from Islam and go and sail toward India. Um, so that was Columbus. But another thing that happened is the uh, Greek uh, manuscripts of the New Testament started to flood west to, to get out of the hands of the Muslims. Uh, so the Orthodox monasteries and all that as they're being overrun, they, they passed on or were, were able to save these manuscripts and they started flowing west. Well, Erasmus, one of the most remarkable things he did is to amass these manuscripts and put together a, a, a critical or annotated copy of the Greek New Testament. Well, this was huge in the West. Before him, all there had been was the Latin Vulgate. They were working from a translation. But with Erasmus's work, as he was um, uh, amassing and, and, and as he published the Greek New Testament, uh, it really opened the eyes of um, monks like Martin Luther and others to the true teaching of the gospel, to the true teaching of the gospel. Let me give you an example um, of some of the problems. The Latin Vulgate, um, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his preaching ministry, Matthew 4, 17, and he says that uh, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. All right. Well, what what came across in the Latin Vulgate for the word repent, the Greek word is metanoete, which is to tra be transformed in your mind. Repent is uh, our version of it. Think differently. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Okay. But what came across in the Latin Vulgate was do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, is that, a, is that a significant change? You better believe it is. For them, it was they had to go do some acts of contrition or penance for their sin in order to get ready for the kingdom. And that's the whole system. You see, well, Erasmus gave to these monks and these priests and all that the true uh, Greek. And they were studying Greek. Luther himself was a classic scholar. He was a classicist himself. He was a humanist. So he was studying um, philosophers and all those kind of things. So he, he knew Greek. And so he said, wait a minute, that's not a good translation. You know, the kingdom of heaven is to those who repent and believe the gospel, not to those who do penance. Well, it was Erasmus that gave all that to the scholars. Some said uh, scornfully, negatively against Luther, that Luther hatched the egg that Erasmus laid. Uh, in other words, that Erasmus kind of made the situation ripe for uh, reformation and it was Luther that brought it to full fruition. Okay, so that was Erasmus. Now I'll tell you about Erasmus. I love Erasmus. He's a very interesting guy. He was very, very hard to pin down. Now you have to realize back then, if you said or preached something directly against the Pope or whatever, they would liable, liable to kill you, to burn you at the stake. When Luther went to the Diet of Worms, it was a very good possibility he was going to end up dead for what he had preached. Um, that's exactly what happened to Huss. It's what happened to Savonarola. I mean, this is what they did back then. So it took an awful lot of courage to confront the church with its, uh, with its excesses. Uh, that's the whole idea of Christendom. You know what I'm saying? A marriage or a unity uh, of the secular arm, the, the arm of the state, you know, which could put you to death and the ecclesiastical of the church side. So if the church side said he's a heretic, 
then the, uh, then the uh, judicial side puts you to death. That's how it worked. Well, Erasmus had no desire to be put to death. But he did want to challenge the things uh, that he saw. And so he was tricky. He would write these little plays or, or things. And, and in effect, he was saying, uh, the views held by those speaking in the play are not necessarily those of the author. You know, that kind of thing. But meanwhile, there's critiques, really, really violent critiques of the church going on in these little discussions uh, of his uh, writing. So, and then when he'd get called on the carpet before. He's like, it's just, it's just a teaching technique to teach people good Latin. That's all it is. I'm not making any real critiques, but they all knew the truth. A good example of this is one of his uh, uh, humorous colloquies is what I'm talking about, the colloquies of Erasmus. Uh, Pope Julius excluded from heaven. Uh, he died, I think, in 1515, just before the time of the Reformation. Julius was one of the examples of the Renaissance popes, big living, luxurious living and literally fighting. He was on horseback. He was, he was just like a military leader. He was nothing like a church leader at all. And so uh, along comes this colloquy, this kind of play in which lines are said about how Julius, the Pope, dying, having died, comes to the gates and he's not allowed in. And the discussion back and forth about why he's not allowed in is a scathing critique of the Catholic Church. But Luther, I mean, that Erasmus never admitted writing it, even though it's clearly in his style. And to the dying day, he said, I didn't write it. But uh, that's him. Now, Luther um, said of Erasmus, he said, Erasmus is as slippery as an eel. Only Christ can catch him. You know, you can imagine a slimy, you know, slippery eel. He's gra- you just can't grab hold of him. He never knew quite where he was. And so I think about, when I think about Erasmus, I think about a man who saw some problems with the church, didn't understand the gospel as clearly as Luther did, but definitely saw some problems, loved Christ, wanted to see Christ exalted in the church, but he also wanted to save his own life. You know, and Jesus says, whoever saves his life will lose it. And that's the whole thing. Luther was willing to die for his, for his doctrines, literally. Erasmus was hiding behind his, his style and his writing and all that and trying to do his work in a backdoor kind of way. Eventually, Luther and Erasmus became more or less enemies on the issue of the gospel uh, because at the core, at the heart, they didn't understand or, or Erasmus uh, did not understand the gospel properly. He saw it as a matter of good morals and ethics and being a good person and doing. And this was the, the Middle Ages way of looking at how you save yourself. You have to do what lies within you and God will do the rest. All right. Well, that's not the gospel. And Luther understood that well. But anyway, these were efforts at reform. Erasmus and Savonarola. Okay. Another key issue with uh, the Reformation was uh, the political landscape. Uh, at that time, there was a rising nationalism, especially in Germany. Now, we're going to come across this later on, but um, Germans were sick and tired of Italian clergy, popes, they were all Italian, um, telling them what to do and especially siphoning German money off to build churches in uh, Rome and in Italy. Uh, they felt that they were being plundered religiously. And so there was a rising feeling of being German. Um, and along with that, there were some political issues. Uh, for example, there was something called the Holy Roman Empire. It was kind of a holdover from Charlemagne and from the time even of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, it was, again, Christendom, the union of the church and the state. But the way that the emperor got elected is that there were certain key princes, kings, little uh, uh, leaders of certain regions that would elect the um, uh, the emperor to the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, there was it, it was time to elect one, and uh, Luther's prince, his king, was an elector. He was one of the guys who got to choose. So there's a lot of politics going on there. The Pope didn't want to offend 
uh, elector, Frederick the Wise, didn't want to offend him. So he's not going to come in there or motivate people to march in and get Luther. And if elector uh, Frederick the Wise decided to protect Luther, which is precisely what he did, there wasn't a lot that the Pope could do. And that literally gave an umbrella of protection and safety for Luther to do his writing and his preaching and his teaching. Do you see it? hundred years before that, Huss had nothing of the kind. There was no protection for him. But rising nationalism and, and the political game gave Luther some room to maneuver. Uh, talked about Christopher Columbus uh, and his sailing, 1492, and the Renaissance, or new thirst for learning. We could talk about each of these at length, but this all just shows how things were ripe for Reformation at the time. One of the key tools, though, for the Reformation was the printing press. Gutenberg had uh, printed his Bible, 1455. Movable type had been seen in the Orient, but it really came to full fl- uh, uh, fruition in Europe. Uh, and you can see why, if you think about the Oriental writing styles, how cumbersome it was. I remember seeing an old Japanese typewriter with like 500 keys. And you're, I mean, talk about the hunt and peck method, you know, and all that kind of thing. But uh, movable type was just ideal for Europe with its, you know, fewer uh, Latin letters, you see. And so Gutenberg, I don't know that he got the idea from the Orient. I don't know, you know, possibly through Marco Polo and all that. No idea. And it uh, doesn't matter. But I do know this, that he uh, started in the West, movable, a metal type printing. Okay, so you got a picture there in your handouts of Gutenberg at his press. And then at the right, Gutenberg's Bible. So you get a sense there of uh, the power of the printing press. Luther, and this is amazing, Luther basically published something every two weeks of his adult life. I mean, that's just staggering. When you stop and think about it, every two weeks he was cranking out a pamphlet or a booklet or a diatribe or some kind of, I mean, he just cranked it out. That makes it hard for people like me who want to teach on Luther. I'll never be able to read everything he wrote. What you have to do is just go with the scholars that went before you and say, these are the most important 50 things he wrote and read those. Um, but they're just cranking things out. And it was really a reformation in the, in the, in the press, in, in, the, in printing. These people were reading things. They were learning. Uh, and they were really interested in what was going on. And so they were really waiting for the next thing that Luther would write as he's answering back, let's say, Erasmus on free will. They were very interested. They were reading. Gutenberg's print, printing press and that whole technology was a big, big part of it. Okay? Well, that all sets the stage for Luther. Luther is the reformer that appears at that right time in the fullness of time. He's the one that steps forward and God uses him in a mighty way. Now, who was Martin Luther? Well, he was born in 1483. His father was a uh, kind of, uh, you know, lower middle class or middle class um, uh, minor uh, who who was somewhat successful and moved up to the point where he had a son who he hoped would become a doctor or a lawyer in some way um, and would be able to support his parents in their old age. That was his uh, concern. Um, Well, Luther was a college student and um, as he was en route uh, back home, uh, he got caught in the middle of a field in a terrible electrical storm and he falls down in the mud and he, he thinks he's about to perish and die uh, at any moment and go to hell. Uh, and so he cries out to St. Anne. He, he says, help me, St. Anne. I shall become a monk. i never forgotten uh, Roland Baton, who is the, the author of the number one biography of Luther, Here I Stand. And uh, he was a professor of church history at Yale. And he talks about this event in a movie that I saw years ago. So he just gets a wry look on his face. The prayer is, help me, St. Anne. I shall become a monk. And then he said, she did. 
and he did. So that's kind of how that went. So St. Anne helped him get out of the electrical storm and he became a monk. That was his first religious conversion. Okay, uh, It was a huge thing to become a monk. He became an Augustinian monk. Uh, there were different kinds of monks. He was an Augustinian monk. And that was essential to his, in my opinion, essential to his theological um, training and his formation. Uh, Augustine had a very strong doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of, uh, of righteousness and justice, imputed righteousness, all of those things. The doctrine of salvation was very strong and became what we would call Reformed or Protestant doctrine in this matter. Problem was that Augustine also had some interesting views about how the church would be set up, sacramental system and all that kind of thing. So someone once said that the Reformation was Augustine's doctrine of salvation, warring against Augustine's doctrine of the church. And the two of them were bumping head to head, like who had Augustine on their side? Well, anyway, Luther became an Augustinian monk and he attempted to save himself by monkery, uh, basically by the life of a monk. That was his goal. His goal was the salvation of his own soul. Great concern for that. So he would spend extreme amounts of time in fasting and in prayer. He would lie on uh, stone floors in the middle of the night and, and not put on the disgusting, dirty woolen blanket he had uh, and not sleep on the hard bed. Whatever would make him physically miserable, he thought was necessary and helpful for his own salvation. Um, and this was, this was a common way of thinking, is that if you had any kind of earthly comforts or pleasures or whatever, that you were going to be paying for it, um, probably not in hell. I think they didn't believe doctrinally that anyone who received the sacrament of baptism would go to hell. You were instantly saved. You were, they believe what we call baptismal regeneration. If you were baptized as an infant, you would never go to hell. You would, however, go to purgatory. And in my mind, there's not an awful lot of difference between eternity in hell and 500,000 years in purgatory. But uh, at any rate, um, that was the doctrine. So purgatory is hanging over your head and it was based on your deeds, on your acts, on your actions. Remember I told you the foundation of their way of thinking was you had to do what, what within you lay. Do what you could. Some people could do more than others. All right, Some were intelligent, able, capable, whatever. God expected more out of you. So others were um, maybe retarded at birth or unable and blind or uh, just simple. Uh, not much was expected out of you, but you had to do what you could and God would do the rest. Uh, that was their view. And so Luther had to do everything he could for his own salvation. He began to, um, you know, they had uh, in the Augustinian uh, monastery where he was at, they had uh, a system of having a father confessor who would spend his time uh, helping you spiritually. He would be working with a number of uh, young monks and trying to help them through. And his was uh, Father John Staupitz. He believes that if it, if it weren't for Staupitz, he would have ended up in hell. Uh, he really thinks that Staupitz was a key instrument from God to keep him from self, from despair. Um, but the problem is he was taking all of Staupitz's time. Like every hour he would go and confess. The idea was if you died with any unconfessed sin, that was huge in terms of your time in purgatory. So what he would do is he would just spend all his time confessing. So he would go and confess and confess and confess and then he'd go away and say, oh, I forgot, I had an inclination of my heart in this direction. Off he goes another half an hour. Staupitz finally got so exasperated. He was like, why don't you do something significant? Go kill your parents or something. Then we'll have something to talk about. But all of this little stuff, you know, you're tormenting yourself. Well, it got to the point where Luther was so anxious about his soul and so filled with negative passion and writhing on the floor at night and screaming out against the devil and all this sort of stuff 
that um, Staupet said, you're making it too hard. All you need to do is love God. And uh, Luther said in a moment of total frustration, love God, I hate him. And he said, well, this is blasphemy. You can't say that, you know. But you can see how if all you're going to get from God is hundreds of thousands of years in purgatory, you could see that that vision of God is so uh, de- destructive. And that's where he was at. He was in, um, in total despair, really. Well, at that point, Staupet says, we've got to do something. This guy's going to implode on us here. And so he said, you need to study. You need to get out and do some things. He noticed he had a good mind, and he did. He had a remarkable mind. He said, um, you're going to become a doctor uh, of philosophy. You're going to be a doctor of theology. And he thought, it's the last thing I want. But it was the very thing that ended up setting him free. Uh, so he began to study and to be a doctor of theology. Uh, this was a key, uh, key step for him. And two key moments happened in his time of study. Um, he began lecturing on the Psalms. And when he came to Psalm 22, uh, verse 1, that's a familiar psalm. And there it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's so fascinating about this is Luther was going through, this was absolutely autobiographical for him. He read it and said, this is exactly the way I feel. I feel forsaken by God. But then he also knew that there was another one who felt that same way. And it was Jesus Christ on the cross. And he didn't, couldn't understand in his medieval Catholic sacramental theology how Christ the righteous one, who I think they believed that he was just there as an example of love and sacrifice to God. And that didn't help you much. Because if you didn't live up to Christ's level, it just was more coals on your head. You see what I'm saying? So, and, and if anything, they were terrified of Christ. Because Christ, they knew, and this was accurate, was the judge of all the earth. And so there are paintings in cathedrals of Christ up on the top of the rainbow with a sword and the sheep and the goats separated before him and all that dreadful picture. And you understand in the hierarchical view of medieval society, he's the emperor. He's the king of kings. You can't even get in to see the emperor. If you're just some lowly person, how in the world are you going to see Christ? He was just too high, too lofty, terrifying, really. But now he's reading in Psalm 22, 1, and then understanding in the gospels it's jesus christ who's saying i'm forsaken of god why would christ be forsaken by god and you can see what happens is the scripture is leading him to understand substitutionary atonement how christ would exchange his righteousness for our wickedness and take our wrath and our punishment on himself whereas he would give to us his gift of righteousness Luther eventually wrote a great work called Two Kinds of Righteousness in in which he understood the exchange, the transfer. Well, it was in studying the Psalms, Psalm 22, 1 in particular, that really opened up and helped him to understand uh, what Christ went through on the cross and how it was a substitutionary sacrifice, not just an example for us to follow. But of course, the second was um, this statement concerning the righteousness of God. Romans 1 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. Now, I want you to understand, I've already given you an interpretation when I say it's the righteousness from God. That is Luther's insight. That's the insight of the Reformation. All the Greek says is the righteousness of God. It's a genitive. And the question is, is it God's righteousness whereby he judges us and condemns us as he originally understood? Or was it a gift of righteousness by which he saves us? And in the context, you can see, if you just look at Romans 1.17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation 
of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is is written, the righteous will live by faith. There's not condemnation in that verse. There's not hell. There's not purgatory. There's salvation in that verse. So then he said, well, what is this righteousness of God? Well, it must be the righteousness by which God makes us righteous. It's a gift of righteousness then. And that was his insight. That was his saving insight. That was his moment of conversion, salvation. Listen to his words writing about a year before his death. And by the way, there's some conflicting accounts of when this occurred for him. And I think a lot of it just comes from you try to remember. It's so hard to remember yesterday. Imagine remembering 30 years ago, even something as significant as this. But still, this is Luther's own words. These are Luther's own words concerning his conversion um, and when he uh, came to faith in Christ. In preface, the preface to Latin's, uh, Luther's Latin writings in Wittenberg, 1545, this is what he said. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistles, epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one ex- expression, the justice of God or the righteousness of God, Romans 1.17. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. meaning, And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. Now, when you look at that, it's really remarkable. And this is, again, a year before he died, looking back on how reading Scripture saved him. I I wonder if in the end we're going to be able to understand and if in heaven we will be able to see how many souls were saved simply by reading Romans. You know what I'm saying? You just think about Paul sitting down to write. It's not really that long a document. You could read it through in very little time. You know what I'm saying? It's about 400 plus verses. Read it in about 45 minutes. All right? And, and it has been the instrument of salvation for, for person after person after person. It's wonderful. Uh, I heard a story about John Piper's son, Abraham, who went through a period of very significant rebellion against God. And some folks in his church, really young people, kind of got in his face, and somebody gave him a verse that he challenged him to read. Well, he couldn't remember precisely the reference of the verse, but he knew it was somewhere in Romans. So he had no choice but to sit there and just read through the whole book. And he told his father, he said, by the time I got to Romans 10, I was saved. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Again and again, the story of the power of the book of Romans and the explanation of the gospel. Isn't that encouraging? Well, anyway, so that's the work that's going on inside Luther. Well, what's going on in Germany? Because we're about to have a huge clash, all right? Well, what's going on in Germany is that the Dominican, Tetzel, has been commissioned by the church to go through German property and start raising money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Do you see the picture of it there? It's a magnificent structure. Well, stuff like that doesn't get built without an awful lot of, of uh, money. 
And so they needed money. Well, where are they going to get it? Well, they're loyal subjects up there in Germany, right? Well, how are they going to get it from them? Well, they're going to play on their religious superstitions and fears. Uh, an indulgence has been called for and commissioned uh, by the Pope. He's going to raise money through this indulgence. Now, what is an indulgence? Well, there's a picture of one right there on the page. Do you see it? There on the right hand, there's a picture of St. Peter. You can almost put an equal sign between these two. Indulgence equals St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. That's how you pay for this kind of thing. All right, A little piece of paper on the right, which basically says in German that you are free from the guilt of your sins. Okay, How do you get it? Pay for it. You just buy it. And so Tetzel went around and he's proclaiming this indulgence. It came with the Pope's seal. And basically, as I say below it, an indulgence is official permission to sin. You know, you can even get indulgences for crimes and sins you hadn't committed yet. Now, that's a, that's a remarkable thing when you stop and think about it. Um, there's a famous story about Tetzel. Now, Tetzel was a phenomenal preacher, probably one of the greatest preachers of his day. Very effective and powerful barnstorming preacher, went from place to place and basically terrified people with terror concerning purgatory or even hell, concerning these things. Because if you committed a mortal sin, you were going to spend eternity in hell, even if you were baptized. And so there would be grave and, and careful, accurate depictions of the suffering of the tormented in hell. And so he's scaring people into buying the indulgence. What's the point? Well, for us, it would be the altar call. Come and commit your life to Christ. For them, it's come and buy the indulgence. Well, they were buying them in huge numbers, of course. And uh, there's a, a famous story. A lot of Germans were against it because they knew that this money was going to Rome, going to Rome, going to Rome. Just a flood of money going, German money going down there to Rome. And they didn't like it. And they had some questions about indulgence. They hadn't been around very long, a century and a half or, or less. Uh, and there were some theological questions about indulgence, some, just some questions about whether it was right. And did that piece of paper really mean what it said? It didn't seem right. You know, could, could a pope have the power just by writing and stamping it to free you from purgatory? Did he really have that kind of authority and power? Well, Tetzel said he did, etc. Well, Tetzel became a kind of a dividing figure himself. Some people really... Uh, were interested in what he was saying and his preaching, and some really hated him. Um, well, there's a famous story about how they went to Tetzel and asked, uh, how much uh, would it cost for a sin that has not yet been committed? Um, and he said, well, that's going to be expensive. What's the sin? They said, highway robbery. And uh, he, said, um, he said, well, it's going to be ex- gold coins. And so they bought it, and then they laid in wait for Tetzel that night. And um, they stole all the money that he had taken from the people in their town and gave it back to them. Uh, well, they were arrested for highway robbery and brought before the magistrate. They produced the indulgence and said, the Pope said, we're innocent. And the, po- and the judge said, look, if God's thrown the case out of court, what can I do? So he threw the case out of court as well. Tetzel obviously was not amused. Um, um, the 95 thesis there on page 5 was the first kind of hammer blow on this whole system. And it began with an attack on indulgences. Luther went to the Wittenberg door. The door was kind of like a bulletin board for the for the town, the community. It was not a strange thing to be nailing things on the door. Please don't do it here. If you have any problems with the church, come and talk to us. We were, we're desirous to listen, okay? But at any rate, that's what they would nail things to the door and people would read them. And these 95 theses were basically theses were 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 propositions for debate. That's what it was. He'd make a statement and say, come on, let's debate this. So he's just going to lay down 95 of these just statements or propositions and take me on, refute, refute me from Scripture if you can. That's what it was, a proposition for debate. On October 31st, uh, 1517, what uh, I consider to be not 
that one holiday, which is no holiday at all, but Reformation Day, um, when Luther began the Reformation. He attacked indulgences, uh, indulgences, penance, and purgatory. Listen to some of these uh, um, 95 theses. Wonderful. Number one is, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's really striking, isn't it? Really striking. You know, even for us today, uh, I've, I've been in situations, even in this church, where people are, have been offended uh, if I called on the church to repent for something. Well, let me tell you something. It says right here in the first, in the first of, of the 95 theses, and it comes right out of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ commanded that we repent. And it's not just when you walk the aisle. I think the more you go on in the Christian life, the more you see your need for it every moment, constantly repenting from sin, constantly repenting from willfulness and selfishness and ambition and all kinds of sins uh, that are there. And and Luther knew uh, he commanded and wanted the whole life to be characterized by repentance. By the way, do you see a little of his study in Erasmus' Greek New Testament behind this? He didn't say the whole life should be done uh, doing penances. That's not it. It's that you should live a life of repentance constantly. Uh, the second one is, this word cannot be understood, understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. He's making that very clear. And so he went through 95 theses. Number six, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing it has been remitted by God. Okay? And number 27, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the, into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. That's exactly, it was a little ditty that Tetzel would use. As soon as the money into the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. It was a German form of that, basically. And so, you know, down it goes and they get out. Well, here's, you know, great-grandma this or great-grandpa that or great-uncle whatever languishing and you don't have enough concern to throw a coin and get them out? Well, Luther says, I don't know if I've got it quoted here. Um, oh, yeah, there it is at the bottom. Questions of the laity. If the Pope has power to free souls from purgatory, why doesn't he empty the place? You know, <laughs> I mean, if that's what he's got power to do, he ought to, you know, go ahead and empty it. If all it takes is a coin. Uh, and that's what the laity were saying. You could see that they were kind of in onto this thing. And he said, if the Pope wants to build St. Peter's, why doesn't he use his own money since he's richer than Crassus? Uh, good point. Uh, other questions. 56. The treasures of the church, that is the reserve of good works accumulated by Christ and the saints upon which the Pope draws to free souls from purgatory, out of which the Pope distributes indulgences are not sufficiently discussed or known among the people of Christ. That's just the beginning of Luther's attack on this idea of the treasury of merit. Let me tell you what I mean by treasury of merit. The idea is that there's a certain amount of righteous living that God expects in order for you to go to heaven. And you can get extra credit in your life. You can actually get 106% in the Christian life. And the extra 6% can be kind of broken off and put into a treasury of merit to be used for other people. You see how it works? The saints were constantly regularly getting 120% or 108% or 119% in the Christian life. And all that extra 8 and 19 and 6% was broken off and put into a treasury of merit. The Pope had authority over the treasury of merit and could dispense mercy and grace out of that treasury of merits. Does that sound like the gospel to you? I'm thinking, how in the world can you ever get ahead of what God expects you to do? God says, well, this is enough for today. You can, you know, you're, you're clear. You've done enough for today. You're paid up in full. Well, that means I'm kind of like free from righteousness the rest of the day. Yeah, you've done enough for today. You could get extra credit for tomorrow if you want. I mean, the whole mercenary way of looking at righteousness is just unbiblical. You can never get ahead of the word of God. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. One we were discussing recently, an elder must be blameless. What? What is that? 
How are you ever going to get more than that? Like, I'm more than blameless today. You must be perfect as your heavenly fathers. How are you going to get 106% in the Christian life? And even if you could, how could you transfer those merits from one human being who's now deceased and gone on to heaven to help some other sinner who doesn't know anything about it? That was the foundation of the doctrine of uh, indulgences, the treasury of merit, like a treasure box that you could dispense coins out of. Only it was mercy, grace, it was righteousness, you see. So Luther's going to start attacking that whole whole approach. He says in 62 there, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. That's the treasure of the church. And he's right. The gospel has the power for salvation, not a bunch of good works that Saint so-and-so did 300 years ago. Okay? So Luther began to write. Now, the 95 Theses was the first blow, but he starts writing um, one document after another, key writings. The focus of his of his theology, the three sola, sola is Latin for alone. So sola fide is justification by faith alone. Sola scriptura is the authority uh, for religious statements and life and practice is scripture alone. Sola gratia, uh, salvation is by grace alone. These were the foundational principles of Luther's theology. Now, unlike John Calvin, uh, Luther was not a systematizer of theology. He didn't arrange his theology systematically so that you could pick up something like Luther's, uh, sorry, Calvin's Institutes and read through everything he would say on the doctrine of God or on Christ the Redeemer, etc. Calvin was a genius at systematization, but Luther was writing something every two weeks, like I said. And so if you wanted to have a systematic theology of Martin Luther, you have to have you know, a 21st century or 20th century theologian to go through all of those writings and start doing it. And they've tried to do it and, they, and some have done a pretty good job of it. But he had some key documents that laid out his doctrines. The first, as I mentioned, was this document, Two Kinds of Righteousness, 1517, page 6. There are two kinds of Christian righteousness, just as man's sin is of two kinds. The first is alien righteousness. That, that is the righteousness of another instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies uh, through faith, as it is written in 1 Corinthians 1. By the way, that bracket 30, it's 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Verse numbers didn't exist in Luther's day. Okay? They came in more, uh, maybe about 10 years after Luther died, okay? the 1550s or so. All right? uh, there was a time there was no such thing as John 3.16. There was just John 3. There was a time there wasn't even John 3. Okay, so but these divisions are helpful for us, but Luther never had any um, scripture verses because uh, they didn't exist in his time. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, Whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. What is he saying? Christ is our righteousness. Not your good works, not your sacramental obedience, none of that. Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 teaches that. Therefore, this alien righteousness instilled in us without our works by grace alone while the Father, to be sure, inwardly draws us to Christ, is set opposite original sin, likewise alien, which we acquire without works by birth alone. Christ daily drives out the old Adam more and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. For alien righteousness is not instilled all at once, but it begins, makes progress, and finally is perfected at the end through death. The second kind of righteousness is our proper righteousness, not because we work at it, but because we work at it, work with that first and alien righteousness. It is that manner of life spent properly in good works, slaying the flesh, crucifying the desires with respect to the self, etc. Now, what is he saying? He's saying there is your position in Christ and then there is your performance daily in Christ. And so 
you can be, and this was an important statement in Luther's theology. In Latin, it's simul justus et peccator. At the same time, just and a sinner. You can be righteous in your standing before God because of this alien or imputed righteousness. You can be righteous in your standing before God and still sin today. You can still sin today and you will. Meanwhile, as grace is working its way out in your life, you're going to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. You're going to become more and more uh, like Christ. That is your proper righteousness, your everyday life righteousness. You see what I'm saying? But then there is your position of righteousness and it's on the basis of that that you'll stand on judgment day. He likens it, as well he should, to the sin we got from Adam. It's an imputed or alien sin, not through anything that we did, but from another imputed to us. So also there's an imputed righteousness given as a gift through faith in Christ, you see? All right, so that is two kinds of righteousness. A second thing he wrote was an open letter to the Christian nobility, 1520. Here he called on secular authorities to legislate the reforms that popes, bishops, cardinals had refused. At the request of Frederick the Wise, he dedicated a summary to Emperor Charles V. He's playing the political game. I think it's interesting. By the way, it's always interesting how these theologians and pastors are dedicating um, their works to certain kings and princes and all that because they knew they were working with Christendom. You had to work with the king. You had to work with the with the uh, civil, or sorry, the yeah, the civil authority. Without it, you weren't going to get very far. So he's dedicating his work to Charles V. Frequently, they would dedicate works to people who didn't to- didn't agree with them at all. You know, <laughs> you know, basically saying, "I've dedicated this to you. Please read it." You know, and, and take an interest in it. But that was exactly what was going on. Church should relinquish worldly wealth and concentrate on spiritual ministries. He destroyed the idea of a special class of priests, instead spoke of the priesthood of all believers. Every Christian was a little Christ in service to his neighbor. Those called priests were first and finally servants to the entire community with no authority other than the gospel message itself. Three walls of Rome must fall like walls of Jericho. First, spiritual power is above the temporal. Priest's work is important, lay people is not. He's saying that's got to go. That's got to go. Uh, the work of the lay people is important too. That's what he's saying. Uh, this is destroyed by the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Secondly, that the Pope alone can interpret Scripture. Uh, Luther was totally against that and proved it by translating the Bible, the whole Bible, into vernacular German. Remarkable German, so I'm told by those who speak it. Um, but just incredibly, uh, he was reaching out to the plowman. He's reaching out to the common worker. So that they would be able, and the basic concept that Luther had is you can understand this. Maybe not all of it. Maybe there's some nuances, some things you'll never grasp. Frankly, we're all in that boat. The better you know scripture, the more you can say amen to that. There are depths of scripture that none of us will ever be able to reach and fully understand. But it's still a benefit to you to read. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for you. So read it. That was his way of thinking. The Catholic hierarchical way is that the Scripture is dangerous in the hands of the lay people. The Pope alone can truly interpret Scripture. Now, he says that wall has got to come down. Balaam's ass was wiser than the prophet himself, says Luther. If then, if God then spoke by an ass against a prophet, why should he not uh, be able even now to speak by a righteous man against the Pope? Number three, the Pope alone can call a council. He says this has got to come down. Again, priesthood of all believers implies that any Christian can call a council, especially civil power can. These are the three walls of the Babylon of the Roman uh, church that have got to come down. And he was pulling them down amazingly. He made strong use of contrast between Christ and the Pope. Christ washed his disciples' feet. The Pope has his feet kissed. Okay, Christ walked along dusty roads. The Pope is being carried on a rich palanquin 
like some potentate. This is the amazing contrast between Christ and the Pope. All right, thirdly, the Babylonian captivity of the church, 1520. This was a radical attack on the sacramental life of the church. He cut the number of sacraments from seven to two. The two that were remaining are the ones that we have and call ordinances, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. He removed confirmation and last rites. I uh, said they were not so serious. It, re- it reduced Roman control over youth and death. Uh, elimination of the sacrament of penance, that was very serious. This was the way that forgiveness of sins was offered to medieval church people. Luther simply said genuine repentance and simple confession to others is all Scripture calls for, not the system of confession to a priest and then certain contritions that were measured out. This is, the, this is what was in place when I was growing up. In the, in the Catholic Church, you went and confessed your sins to the priest. He would listen to them. Then he'd tell you certain prayers to pray or certain good deeds to do to pay for it. Does that sound like indulgences? He would never say that, but that was the mentality I had. I say, well, you're childish. You don't really understand true Catholic theology. Well, I'm not sure anybody really does. But I'll say this. There is certainly a sense of a mercenary exchange. I did this sin. I need to do these good works. That was the basic concept. And that hadn't changed much even from the time of medieval Catholicism. Luther said, no, all you need to do is confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, as it says in Scripture. Uh, He rejected the uh, sacrament of ordination, which destroyed the caste system of clericalism that made the priests higher than the lay people. He rejected marriage uh, as a sacrament, no longer seen to be sacrament as well. Clergy should be permitted to marry because they need housekeepers and to place a man and a woman together under such circumstances like placing straw near fire and expecting it not to burn. Well, I'll tell you, Luther has all kinds of things. If you don't get your feathers rubbed by reading Luther, I mean, you're not alive. But uh, Luther never really wanted to be married. Um, I can see we only have about eight more minutes uh, tonight. Uh, but he eventually was married, and it was really remarkable. He said one of the most shocking and miraculous things in his life was to wake up with pigtails on his pillow. He said that was just, uh, he never expected it. But he loved uh, Katie Von Bora, and they had a sweet, sweet relationship. But you see, the thing with him, and this is what I'm telling you, it wasn't just Luther's doctrine, it was his life as well. He knew how significant it would be for him to marry. He knew that that was huge, and he, he saw it as biblical and right, and that uh, clerical celibacy was nowhere commanded in Scripture. And so he destroyed it, not just by his preaching, but by his example. He went ahead and married a nun, um, former nun. So anyway, uh, the most serious attack was on the Mass itself. He changed the Mass, uh, changed from the Mass to the Lord's Supper. Mass was seen to be a repetition of the Incarnation and Crucifixion. It was a dry and spiritual sacrifice, a re-offering of Christ to God on behalf of the sins of the people. That was false. Now, Luther had a very high view of the Lord's Supper. All right, and if we had time, we could talk about how at the Colloquy of Marburg, he broke forever with Ulrich Zwingli, who said that the Lord's Supper was merely uh, symbolic. He said, it's not merely symbolic. Jesus said, this is my body. And you can't erase those words. He wrote the words, hocus corpus meum, on a table in, in uh, chalk and said, this is the verse that will break your bones, he said to Zwingli. He said, you'll find that my bones aren't so easily broken. Uh, what was broken was the fellowship between the Swiss uh, Reformation and the German Reformation on that very issue, the Lord's Supper. Luther was unmovable. That's just the way Luther was. Uh, he was like an axe, you know, and, and he just, he, he have to be tough. And I think he was wrong but he was strong and tough. That's the way he was. So don't think when he's attacking the mass that he has a low view of the Lord's Supper. He doesn't. But he, had, uh, f- he said it was faulty to think that the priest was actually offering the body and blood of Christ 
as a sacrifice back to God. So that's uh, the Babylonian captivity of the church. He also wrote The Freedom of a Christian on page 8. And this is very interesting. Two key propositions. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Secondly, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant or slave of all, subject to all. The freedom of the Christian comes in being free in Christ. If the Son uh, makes you free, you'll be truly free. Free from sin. Free from the law. Free from the burdens of the, uh, the unbiblical sacramental system. Free. Nothing outward can make us either truly free or truly slaves. It has to do with the state of your soul, you see. That's what he was getting at. The whole issue then was the hearing of the Word of God with faith. The gospel actually creates faith in the heart. The moment you begin to have faith, you learn that all things in you are altogether blameworthy and sinful and damnable. A Christian is thus constantly penitent for sin. Works of love directed toward others then follow faith naturally. Quote, So the Christian who is consecrated by his faith does good works, but the works do not make him holier or more Christian, for that is the work of faith alone. Okay? So these are some of his writings, and they're very brief, brief summaries I've given you here of the whole work. But you can see how comprehensive and how powerful these writings would have been in the hands of people who were just ignorant of the true gospel, who did not have the Bible in their language, who if they didn't speak Latin, and most of those folks didn't, didn't really know the first thing about theology. They just did what they were told. They went when they were supposed to go and they listened to what they were supposed to listen to, though they didn't understand it, and they did what they were supposed to do. But their minds and their hearts were dark because they didn't have the Word of God. Luther started giving them the Word of God. Now, the political context we've already mentioned, Elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony was Luther's prince and protector. When Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian died, a new emperor had to be elected. So popes were secretly, uh, the Pope secretly opposed the front-running candidates. Uh, Charles I of Spain, Francis I of, of France, the emperor's crown would make each too powerful. So Pope, the Pope actually wanted Frederick of Saxony, uh, Luther's prince, to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, I'm telling you, these guys were playing a game of chess all the time, kind of like geopolitical chess. And uh, I'm just telling you that Luther found a little bubble of safety behind that political game. But God was working at much bigger stakes. You know, if you had lived back then, who got elected as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was huge. Well, it wasn't anywhere big, as big as the bubble of protection that Luther had to do his preaching and teaching. Isn't it remarkable? You, know, you stop and think, these are the big events of the day. No, the big events has to do with how the Word of God is being propagated, who's believing it, what's going on with that. So that the political context gave him some room to maneuver. Well, what are some of the steps that led to the explosion? Well, Tetzel, the Dominican, started to attack Luther uh, after the 95 Theses came out. The early assessment by Pope Leo X was, and I quote, Luther is a drunken German. He'll feel better in the morning when he's sober. So that was... Uh, kind of dismissing quickly uh, any any weight coming from this. But the thing is, the emissaries that are going out for the Pope to deal with this growing and growing and growing controversy found him to be sharper than they could have ever imagined. He was an excellent debater, an excellent thinker. He was no drunken German who would be sober in the morning. He was actually brilliant. And they knew that the more they went on. But uh, even once they started to realize how brilliant he was, they said, well, you know, this is just one more of those inter kind of uh, monas- monastery squabbles. You know, the Dominicans are always fighting against the Augustinians and all. It's just another one of those, it'll die down. Well, it wouldn't. It didn't. All right, then the Diet at Augsburg in 1518. Tremendous danger for Luther. The case was transferred to Germany, but Luther feared execution. Elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony promised Luther safe conduct, just as John Huss 
had been promised a hundred years earlier. Let me tell you something. Those promises of safe conduct, if you're ever there in the 16th century, which you never will be, but they're not worth the paper they're printed on, all right? They promise you safe conduct to your execution is what it is. So we'll keep you safe until we burn you. So Luther was in great danger. Cardinal Cajetan's Rome uh, was Rome's representative. Uh, the meeting went badly. Luther uh, wrote to his friends, the cardinal was no more worthy to handle the case than for a donkey to play a harp. Um, basically, he didn't know what was going on. He couldn't refu- refute uh, Luther, uh, he was not capable of dealing with it. The next level was the Leipzig debate in July of 1519. Now they sent somebody a little bit more skillful, Johann Eck. He was a skillful debater. He maneuvered Luther to declare that a Christian with Scripture had more authority than popes and councils without the Scripture. Brothers and sisters, that is true, but boy, is that dangerous back then. You know, I mean, think about it. The willingness to stand up and say something like that. Christian with Scripture, even the simplest Christian with Scripture is more, has more authority and power than all the popes and councils without Scripture. My goodness. Um, Luther forced the council uh, to declare that the council, uh, forced to declare that the council of Constance that had executed John Huss had been wrong. Again, a true statement, but he's basically standing alongside a condemned heretic. He was just a German Huss is what he was, and he was. I mean, they taught the same things. Eck asked a probing question, and this question haunted Luther and would come back to him the night before at the Diet of Worms when he asked for some time to think about it. The question was this, are you alone right and all the rest of us wrong? Now, that is a probing question, especially to a guy with a sensitive conscience like Luther. All right, Luther was really forced to ask, could it really be that I'm the only one hearing it right here? Well, he wasn't the only one, but the others are afraid and they're not stepping forward yet. They needed, God needed a leader who would stand up and say, whether I live or die, this is what I'm reading in Scripture. And until I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I can't do anything but that. But Eck put that question in his mind. Can it possibly be that you're right and the rest of us are wrong? All right. After the debate, his friends called him Luther, the Saxon Huss. That's no compliment at that time, you know, given how it ended up for Huss. Okay, uh, the papal bull, 1520, exurge domine, which literally means rise up, O Lord. A wild boar has entered your vineyard. Come and stomp him, kill him. Uh, Luther was a wild boar. He's ripping the vineyard of the Lord uh, to, to shreds. Papal decree gave Luther 60 days to recant or he'd be excommunicated. Well, the problem was Luther got it like four months later. I mean, mail, the mail system wasn't, wasn't what it was. You talk about snail mail. Things were even slower back then. So you got 60 days to recant. By the time you get it, you're already... 20, 30 days over. Um, but anyway, Luther wasn't going to obey that in any case. He burned it. My goodness. Then Luther's three tre- treatises that we talked about above, we already uh, looked at. By this point, there's a complete breach with Rome. There's no possibility of turning back. Finally comes the Diet of Worms in 1521, uh, April 16th and 17th. He appeared before a- Emperor Charles V. Now, Emperor, the Emperor Charles V was staunchly Catholic, but he appeared to defend his writings. And before he went, he stated to his friends who are afraid for his life, this is my recantation. Previously, I said the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant. Do you hear that? So they want a recantation. This is my recantation. I used to say the Pope was a vicar of Christ. That's what I recant. I now say the Pope is the adversary of Christ and apostle of the devil. You want to hear my recantation? That's what it is. All right. Well, he wasn't quite so bold when he got to the Diet of Worms. 
He stated that he would go even if there were as many devils as tiles on the roof. Crowds cheered him along the way as he came to, came to Varms. Now, you, you talk about that, I would go even if there's this many devils as tiles on the roof. Don't you hear? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. That's Luther's writings. He had that sense that even if the, the, all the devils from hell are surrounding that whole way, I'm going to go. Do you see the courage of the man? I mean, think about what it took to face the spiritual torments and the physical danger as well. And he went there. When he got there, he expected to have a fair debate, but it wasn't anything of the kind. What they did was they stacked up all of his books on the table, pointed to them and said, Dr. Martin Luther, are these your writings? And uh, he's like, well, wait a minute. This isn't what I expect. He started to uh, want to debate and said, that's not what we're here for. We want to know, are these your writings? And do you recant from these writings? He said, but you know, I can't. I mean, there's all kinds of things I've written. If I recant from everything in those writings, I'll be rejecting the gospel itself. Well, they said, all right, enough of this trickiness. He said, well, finally, I need, I need some time to pray. He said, you've had all this time to prepare. He said, I need some time. So the emperor gave him one night, one day. So they're going to ask him the next day. Well, he spent a night in tortured prayer. And you know what's on his mind? X question. Can it really be that you're right and all, not just these people, but centuries of people have been wrong? Can this really be the case? But in the end, he comes and stands forth. They ask him the same question. Will you recant from what you've written in these books? He says, and I quote, Eck asks, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and your errors that they contain? Luther says, since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Well, Luther was excommunicated by the Diet of Worms and we're out of time. Okay. Uh, Quickly, what happened after that is he was going from Worms back to uh, Wittenberg. He was abducted by some hooded horse horsemen who took him away uh, and they were sent by Frederick the Wise to protect him and save his life. So he's hidden in um, the Wartburg, which is on the cover of your handout there, this castle fortress. And there he began his, his work of translating the Bible into German. And that's where we'll end the story uh, this time. Okay, Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time we've had tonight to go over uh, some of the history of your servant uh, and our brother in Christ, Martin Luther. We're grateful for his life. We're thankful for his discoveries and his understanding of the word of God as it is plainly written. Father, I thank you for the good um, fruit that have come now, five plus centuries of good fruit from uh, this one life. Father, I pray that we would be faithful and courageous as he was, willing to lay down our lives for the truth Uh, Father, we don't know, but the things will change in our own culture and our own history. And there may be a time that it will be necessary for us to seal with our blood the doctrine that we have taught with our lips, as Huss said. And Father, I pray that we would be willing to do so. Luther never had to do that, Lord. You protected him. But I thank you and I praise you for the life and for the doctrine that he taught. Lord, go with us now as we go on to serve you, as we minister to one another. Help us to speak words of kindness, grace, and love to one another and build each other up in our most holy faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.